Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30-minute update on the latest in South African and global news. We are live and then as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Wednesday the 10th of January. Coming up on the program, a top advisor in the presidency on South Africa's slow economic growth and how to accelerate it. What are the immediate priorities for the new electricity transmission company? We'll look at the tough candidate vetting process for a new political party. Why Action SA is chasing the ANC on a massive debt it owes to an investment company. And the Boeing 737 MAX door bolt incident should local flyers be worried. More than three years after being announced, finally ESCOM has taken the first step of separating its business operations into three separate companies. It's appointed a board of non-executive directors from the National Transmission Company of South Africa. Some commentary now from Khusi Moleshi, who is a development finance and energy expert. Khusi, a very warm welcome to you. What, in your opinion, then, are the primary strategic priorities for the new company? Uh, good afternoon to you and to the listeners. I think the pri- the primary priorities are to set up a, a strategy um, in line with where government wants to go in terms of the national transmission company, which is uh, obviously licensed to, which will hold the assets, um, the transmission assets that ESCOM currently has. It will also be trading with the independent power producers as well as ESCOM generation and others. And then it will also be continuing the importing and exporting of power from different areas in the in the region. So the priority will therefore be able to set up properly um, the, the staff that um, will be tra- transferred from ESCOM and to position the company for it to be able to support the transmission of power and enabling of um, a transmission of power mm. in the in South Africa. So it's a big job. Where do you think currently the transmission deficiencies are? Currently, uh, um, the, the the deficiencies are in the fact that most of South Africa is suffering from generation capacity, and that capacity needs this to be transmitted to where it's supposed to be. So all the new projects that are supposed to come online will need the development of new capacity. And that is a daunting task, particularly because of the financial or capital requirements for that project. So that is the biggest issue, and government is looking to, to engage the private sector in this regard, which will be a first for South Africa. So it all comes down to money, as you rightly say. Do you think that the splitting of these uh, or of the single entity into three units is going to meet then with favorable investor uh, demand or in, 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 investor feeling, uh, given the importance of, uh, of, of generating and transmitting more power? I think there is an appetite in the market 
for 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 this uh, transmission business, particularly those entities that are looking to do environmental financing to support renewable energy projects. So international parties have been on the table trying to support government with respect to that. The devil will be in the detail with respect to how this um, project will be structured, um, whether they they will end up uh, attracting the relevant investors. But the, 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 the market has shown an appetite for it. It depends on the structuring of these transactions. And that's absolutely critical. How important is that structuring and where is the risk then attached to that? I, I think where government, where there may be challenges is the reluctance from government to provide the guarantees to support the transmission, uh, the, these transactions. So government will have to come up with creative means to provide certainty to investors that there will be payment. Um, and that is why it is critical to have a board, to have um, a, a funding model that is um, that is uh, robust. Um, we know that this, uh, in terms of the funding model, the national transmission company will be getting revenues from um, uh, connecting all these independent power producers and and charging fees for that. So that is uh, those things are about well for the future, but the but the devil really be in the detail. Two other or three other issues that this new operating company has got to look at is one is navigating the regulatory landscape, particularly with regards to licenses granted by NERSA. The other two, of course, are ensuring compliance and operational excellence. Again, early days, but this needs to be taken into consideration. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, so far, um, it's, uh, it's uh, national... Uh, the national regulator has provided the licensing for transmitting, for trading, for imports and exports. And so ESCOM has at least overcome that hurdle. Um, I think the most important thing is that since South Africa is looking to change the system for what is dominated by ESCOM to a system where other players are in the market, it will be important then um, to have ancillary services, which are the services that are backing up the system to ensure that our system is stable. That's one of the critical elements that this entity is supposed to look at. Khusi Muleshi, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. A new report by Harvard's Growth Lab has found that South Africa's economy is performing poorly and its society is facing the consequences of extreme unemployment and inequality. No real surprises there. But is there any new thinking in terms of growing and developing the economy? Rudy Dix is the head of project management at the presidency and he joins us now on MoneyWeb at Medan. First of all, you've been talking up about how government plans to boost growth this year and particularly appealing to business to work work with them to achieve these goals. What then do you see as the biggest obstacles to achieving inclusive growth and what new thinking then, Rudy Dix, are you putting on the table? Well, I mean, fundamentally, the challenges still remain, right? What are the biggest challenges for inclusive and uh, higher levels of growth? It is the electricity supply shortfall. You know, we've spoken about that on many occasions. It's quite important that we move at a greater speed and pace. We have to address uh, fundamentally and implement the energy action plan. And if you recall, it's about improving the overall fleet of ESCOM. 
It's about getting private sector investment. It's about ensuring that we quicken our pace on the public procurement IPP program, rooftop PV, and the transformation of the electricity market. I think we've done a number of significant interventions on all of those five areas. Um, as I've said before, what we have to try and do in the quickest and short term is to try and reduce the levels of load shedding as we walk towards ending load shedding, and I think that's quite important. So over the year, over 2023, and we'll continue to do this, is to ensure that we reduce that. We try and ensure that, uh, for example, the improvement in the energy availability factor and the performance of the fleet has helped us with Kosili 1, 2, and 3 coming back online, synchronization of Unit 5, for example, mm. uh, continued uh, support and collaboration with the private sector to improve um, the performance of the six power stations in the, the energy generation recovery plan of ESCOM. The criticism, though, is yeah. that this isn't happening fast enough, and you'll also be aware that there has been a lot of negative critique about the energy action plan, calling it uh, vague and, uh, and, and, and missing a lot of vital components. Actually not. I mean, when, when we developed the energy action plan in July 2022, Jeremy, I think we did an extensive consultation process with business, energy experts, um, various uh, stakeholders, including NEDLAC uh, business and, uh, and organized labor. And what we have done is develop a collaborative effort. So when we set up the National Energy Crisis Committee to implement the EAP, initially what it was was a, a government-driven process. As the president initiated the collaboration with business, we brought the business colleagues into the Energy Action Plan and the National Energy Crisis Committee structures to be able to support us. Right now, there's an extensive collaboration process. For instance, we're quite advanced in deploying a significant number of private sector experts to the six power stations. They've already helped us with the Kosilek flu duct. They helped us with the OCGTs at Ankerlik, for example, in improving its performance. Mm. So collaboration is going to be important. Where we don't have the expertise internally, we have to you know, collaborate with the private sector to be able to ensure that. So I, I think that... Let's talk a lot of doing, and I agree with you. We need to move it. We need to move at greater speed and pace. The electricity minister is still talking, though, about another six years of load shedding. I think that the electricity minister has made it fairly clear that what we have to do is reduce the levels of load shedding, and I think that's what we have. We are unable to say to you exactly when load shedding will end. It would require two interventions. Number one, improving plant performance, and he's working fairly hard in ensuring that we improve plant performance across the fleets. And secondly, getting as much energy, new energy onto the grid as quickly as possible. And we've shown that. For example, our intervention through unlocking private embedded generation, uh, we have now a pipeline of over 10 gigawatts of private investment in the generation space that will come online over the next year, two years and three years. So this is going to be important for us getting additional megawatts on as we at the same time improve the energy availability factor of the ESCOM fleet. So in terms of what you're looking for around partnership with business, how can you accelerate that? How can you optimize that and also bridge the levels of mistrust that you will concede still exist? Absolutely. So if you recall, during the course of last year, the president announced a collaborative effort that focused on three practical areas. And that's what's uh, useful about this collaborative partnership, that it's not simply a conversation and discussion at a theoretical level or at a high level. It is about how business can support and cooperate and collaborate with government. So we did three things. It is on the energy action plan and the, and the support from business around that. The second area was around freight logistics and improving our overall performance on 
the logistics system so that you know we are able to get our products to market and thirdly was on crime and corruption what we have developed with business is a collaborative effort on specific areas in each of those three interventions that can support a practical intervention and a lot of it is about developing and supporting capacity where capacity does not exist so office of support for instance in uh, assisting transnet or for example as i said under the uh, the generation recovery plan of escom where capacity is going to be deployed or has already been deployed at the power stations to be able to support power station managers and those teams over there. So it's very practical. That's the way that I think it's going to be important for us to develop a proper collaborative approach, unlike having a conversation at a high level. If business can see and we all have the same objective, I think that's the way we're going to be able to build trust, uh, ensure that we're able to cooperate, uh, collaborate. And of course, the end objective is to build the economy and to create more more jobs at the end of the day. And how are you going to make that work when it comes to freight and logistics and the crisis that exists at Transnet? One of the things that we have done, of course, is to do something similar that we did to energy. We set up a, a national logistics crisis committee. This one is a full partnership with the private sector. They participate in the relevant actions and interventions across the eight streams that are there. Businesses particularly focus on improving the existing performance of transit, both uh, rail freight and at the port. So that has been an important part of setting up the interventions. During the course of last year, in the last cabinet meeting, cabinet adopted the freight logistics roadmap. Very practical sets of interventions in the short run, and of course, supporting structural reform of the freight logistics system in the long run. Again, very specific areas of support that has been there, specifically on the corridors, the um, iron ore and the manganese corridor, for example, businesses come on board to support efficiency improvements. Similarly, we've been doing stuff with the Richards Bay Coal Terminal and the North Corridor, which is the coal line, very practical interventions that have been uh, supported by business around that. Again, that's exactly what we need to do. So those are the two biggest constraints Mm. right now for our economy, and we need to fix that. And we need to do it as with speed, as you say, Jeremy. We don't have the time to relax. Rudy Dix, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I've got two pre-election political stories now. Let's start with this one. The Party Action SA is calling for details on how the African National Congress will settle its 100 million rand Isilweni investment company debt. The national chairperson of Action SA, Michael Beaumont, says the party has now written to the IEC asking for party funding or asking for an investigation into party funding. He joins us now. Michael Beaumont, why then are you still chasing this issue? Well, because it's an issue of great public importance. The Party Funding Act is explicit about the level of disclosures that are required uh, associated with donations and what it prohibits. And if you have a situation where Isilweni Investments has discounted the settlement agreement by more than 15 15 million rand, that is unlawful in terms of the Party Funding Act because it counts as a donation in kind. And if the ANC has funded that 102 million rand debt settlement by anything less than seven donors because of the 15 million rand uh, limit, it's also unlawful. We are concerned that the details are scant here. The spokesperson of the ANC issued a two-line statement at the end of last year, and the brevity of that statement tells you a lot. And the spokesperson today has indicated that they are not willing to provide this information. It is a concern because... Political parties adhering to the Party Funding Act does appear to become a bit selective. But also, let's be clear, this is a political party that has proven a propensity 
to provide state tenders to individuals who fund them privately. And that was very clearly seen in the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. And that's why this information must be made known so that there can be real transparency. What have you heard from the Independent Electoral Commission so far? They've acknowledged receipt. I think in fairness, that was only issued to them yesterday or so. So we await to hear their response. But certainly they have confirmed receipt and that they will begin the process to assess our request for an investigation. Is that the right organization to do it or would it be better for you to bring out the big guns and go the legal route? Well, I think it's the right organization to begin with. There certainly are shortcomings in terms of what the Act empowers the IEC to do, but it starts with the IEC. Based on how the IEC responds, certainly the courts may become a viable option because what's important to note is that the Act is, is created through a constitutional court judgment. And that judgment was very explicit about transparency having to be read into everything so that when voters go to the polls, they can make an informed decision as to whether political parties are funded by organizations through corrupt means or not, by way of an example. Michael Beaumont, the president is reported to have said today that those who believe the ANC's agreement with a company might be irregular should consider approaching the office of the party's treasurer general to get clarity on the matter. He says it's a straightforward issue of debt. That seems like the brush-off to me. Well, it was an interesting contradiction, actually, because the ANC spokesperson moments beforehand said that we were not entitled to that information and the South African people had no right to it. And the president then turned around and made that offer. So Action SA, as we speak, is busy engaging the ANC Treasurer General to indicate that the president has made this offer and we're going to accept it uh, with arms wide open because this information should be revealed. And I suspect very strongly that the president's offer is going to be found to be hollow when we take it up. So what's your next step as far as the engagement with the Treasurer General is concerned? We'll be writing to the Treasurer General. We are indeed, as we speak, indicating that this offer has been made and we'd like to take it up. And we will be communicating to the South African people that we are taking the step and we will keep them appraised of every development along this journey, both in terms of the willingness to provide this information and should we receive it, what that information says. On a broader level, what steps, Michael, do you believe should be taken to ensure transparency and lawful compliance in the settlement of any type of political debt? Well, I think these things must be publicized. We can't differentiate from the fact that the ANC political party that has disclosure requirements in terms of the Funding Act is also the party that governs many municipalities, provinces nationally. And it has the means to blur the lines between private and state funding. And certainly, I think that responsibility is incumbent upon the ANC to go beyond what might be a minimum level of information required through disclosures and to be transparent with the South African people. In the final court processes in the Supreme Court of Appeal, it is recorded that the ANC's bank account had only 100,000 rand in it. And we've seen unpaid employees of the ANC protesting in the streets outside Latuli House. So how did a 102 million rand settlement take place overnight in that fashion is an important question and quite frankly can't be fobbed off as readily as the ANC may wish to do so. What are your suspicions in that respect? Well, certainly I think the suspicions is that there is unlawful uh, donations in terms of the Party Funding Act. We believe that donations have been made uh, against that uh, settlement, which would be in breach by being over 15 million rand. But also, and I think this is the real concern, 
that companies or donors that have been involved in the settlement agreement, whether it's Isolwani Investments themselves or any of the other donors who are contributing towards the debt settlement, may well be registered service providers to the state and may well be handsomely rewarded for their donations through state contracts going forward. And this is what we need to look at. Michael Beaumont, thank you very much for joining me. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The party Rise Mzanzi has co-opted several political heavyweights to oversee its independent candidate selection nominations for the upcoming general election. Boitomelo Mpakanyani is Rise Mzanzi's head of internal democracy and joins us now on MoneyWeb at midday. So first up then, why have you gone this route? So, Jeremy, in building our manifesto, we consulted with over 120 towns and cities and communities across the country. What we realized at the core is at the core of all of the, the issues that South Africa is seized with is a crisis of leadership, right? But I think beyond that, South Africans, you know, this, this idea of a public representative is supposed to be, at least in the kind of idealistic sense of the word, it's supposed to be somebody you send to represent your interests and should have a kind of direct relationship of accountability between you and this person. Obviously, our proportional representation reality doesn't allow for that kind of direct link. So we have tried to kind of overlay a degree of constituency governance over the PR reality that we exist in, so that at least for ourselves and how we navigate public representation, we can create a direct or closer relationship with constituents, be it geographic constituents or psychographic constituents, and our public representatives. And just effectively to give power back to people and mm. give people even outside of the Rising Zanti community a greater say in who becomes their public representative out of the understanding that our MPs don't just exist to represent the Rising Zanti supporters. We must solve for everybody in South Africa once we get into the National Assembly and into legislatures. So can you elaborate then Mm. on the specific criteria and process that will be used in selection? Sure. So the process itself entailed an open call for nominations and applications. People in uh, to a large majority, I think about 60% of the nominations invariably came from members and supporters of Rising in our ecosystem, but there was a fair degree of people from outside and you could nominate a South African, a community leader, prominent figure who you would like to represent your interests in the National Assembly. They then would accept that nomination by submitting an application and then that application is then considered by a nominations committee which assesses a candidate's application on in two kinds in two separate assessments. The first assessment assesses a candidate for their qualifications, relevance, um, professional, or just like organizing and job history, their academic qualifications, their history of community service, their history of ethical record, um, the, the ethical record of leadership, to some degree name recognition so that, you know, people are able to identify with people in communities. And then there's kind of hard eligibility criteria in the sense that we don't allow people with default judgments because you can't kind of preside over a public, a public purse if your personal finances aren't sound. You have to have at the minimum a matric or threshold or equivalent. You can't have, can't be under sequestration or debt review. You can't have a criminal record or any pending criminal matters or interim or final protection orders and obviously like I said, relevant work experience. So the Nominations Committee is going to do the work of assessing this and applying the baseline eligibility criteria 
anyone who doesn't meet that baseline criteria cannot be considered as a candidate. So from whether it's ZB at the top or a field organizer or just any South African community leader, if you don't meet that baseline criteria, you cannot stand. As far as the nomination committee is concerned, how did you <coughs> arrive at a decision to recruit this particular cohort of political heavyweights that you claim you have? So we appointed an independent elections management company called the Elections Agency, and effectively they proposed a, a nom- the, the nominations committee to us. We didn't want to have any say or any direct kind of involvement in the process of appointing the nominations committee because it would kind of erode the independence that exists or that should exist between the organization and the committee. So they were appointed by the elections agency. And basically the brief was, you know, South Africans with a, with a prominent history and experience, with prominent experience and history in, in governance across all sectors of society, business, NGOs, community-based organizations, and civil society, but basically people who themselves exhibit the qualities of the kind of public representative we'd like to send into the National Assembly and into provincial legislatures, at least in some way, uh, and would be best placed to assess the applications of our of our nominees and applicants. This is a, a real challenge to the whole notion of cadre deployment, isn't it? It is, and that's that's actually precisely the purpose, Jeremy. I think our our kind of founding principle was challenging that notion and, and working backwards from it. So the process itself is really an outcome of that understanding, specifically trying to redefine cadre deployment and the kind of harms it's imposed on South Africa and, and on public governance and the erosion of our public institutions. But like I said, secondly, creating that closer degree of accountability because, you know, electoral reform is a, is a core component of residents on his uh, political reform uh, strategy. And that's where we are going to leave it. Uh, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Investigators probing the fuselage blowout on a Boeing 737 MAX 9 on the 5th of January have now determined that a door plug moved upward before ejecting and that fittings holding the part in place came loose. Obviously, this is a disturbing set of events, given that this aircraft has been involved in previous incidents. Joining us now is respected aviation commentator Guy Leach, also editor of SA Flyer magazine. Guy, how do you think this affects the global aviation community's confidence in Boeing? Hi, Jeremy. Nice to be with you. Look, I don't think that we can understate its impact on Boeing. Boeing has been in the firing line ever since the two MAX crashes four or five years ago. And uh, it's, it hasn't really shown the ability to, to reshape uh, itself, to reform itself, to break the perception that it's all about profits and not about safety. And uh, this, uh, although the new uh, CEO, David Calhoun, has been trying hard to do this, this particular incident now couldn't come at a worse possible time. And it comes on top of an ongoing series of problems that they've been having with quality control on the, on the MAX in particular, but also with the 787 Dreamliner. Why would they be having quality control issues, do you think? Yeah, well, the nature of building aircraft these days, whether you're Airbus or Boeing, A or B, is a a massive supply chain that people, or rather parts, are built all over the world in many cases and shipped and railed um, to a central assembly point. In France, it's usually Toulouse or or Hamburg in Germany and in in the United States in Wichita or or in Seattle. 
Um, and indeed, the, all the fuselages for the 787 are made by a company called Spirit Aero Systems in Wichita, which is right in the central middle of the United States. And then they are railed, would you believe it, put on trains and carried on trains all the way across to the West Coast, to Seattle. Um, and it's in fact a Spirit Aero Systems who manufacture these airframes um, and who may in fact be the problem in this particular case, and not so much Boeing. Not that the responsibility is not Boeing's to see that the actual aircraft that comes out of the doors is properly put together. It also says a lot about maintenance and inspection routines, doesn't it? Uh, not particularly in this case. The aircraft, as I recall, has, off the top of my head, had only about 142 cycles. In other words, it was almost brand new. I believe it was less than two months old. Uh, this is really early days in terms of, uh, of of an airliner, and they would expect it to be new and intact. I mean, there is a very rigorous inspection cycle, but they wouldn't be ex- inspecting something that is supposed to be an inert door plug, as they call it, uh, just a panel that should have been just fixed firmly into the aircraft. That wouldn't have been subject to these sort of inspections. What is concerning, though, that there are some reports suggesting that Alaska Airlines, uh, the aircraft in question, uh, had already been warned previously about air pressure issues on that same aeroplane. Surely that would raise red flags, which obviously weren't heeded. Well, absolutely, and and th- that goes not not to Boeing or to or, or to Spirit, but to the entire SMS, which is a safety management system that the airlines are using. If the pilots had written up uh, leaking um, pressurization systems, it does need to be inspected. In fact, uh, locally, we will recall. Uh, um, Fly South Air had a, had a bad patch with one particular aircraft where it had about three de- de- depressurizations in the space of about a month and then eventually of course they grounded it and replaced all the faulty components. It's it's a important sign that um, maintenance must investigate because it's obviously it's very traumatic with, for passengers to have all the uh, oxygen masks suddenly drop down. Just quickly Guy, are we operating this particular model in South Africa and if we are, should we be doing anything? Uh, no, there's no South African operator of the Boeing 737 MAX at all. Comair Kalula had ordered a, a five. Uh, one was delivered. The rest were cancelled. There's still an ongoing battle about that. I think it's also worth pointing out, though, that this problem has only affected a very limited number of Boeing 737 MAX 9s. Those are the ones with the low-density seating uh, configuration. The ones with the high-density seating, more than 200 passengers, do have to have this door as an opening exit and not just uh, bolted closed, as it were. But no, we don't have to worry about it in this country. We still operate 737-800s, and they have an incredibly good safety record. Guy Leach, thank you very much indeed. And as we end the program, other stories on our radar. No water flowing into Santon reservoirs for the next 48 hours as Rand Water undergoes unplanned maintenance. That'll happen tomorrow and on Friday. And the Times of Israel reporting that Benjamin Netanyahu's war cabinet will meet tonight to discuss Israeli plans for the Gaza Strip when the war is finished. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we are up as a podcast. Thank you for listening. And goodbye.
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.